بعده والصلاة والسلام على من لا نبي بعده نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وأن معهم إلى يوم الدين أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد We start by praising Allah We seek refuge in Him from the evils of our own souls and from the wickedness of our own actions. We ask Allah to guide us, to make us firm, to make us steadfast on the one and only path that leads to success in this life and wins paradise by His mercy in the hereafter. The path of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We ask Allah to grant us the right understanding of Islam and its correct application in life. I'm going to briefly try and talk about some of the uh, thematic matters of this conference in a speech. I'll try to anyway, inshallah. It's not going to be easy because some of the points we want to raise or discuss is best left to the scholars who are well versed in the deen and who are articulate enough to express with wisdom what needs to be said according to the levels of the people. And I certainly don't fit the capacity of being a scholar to any degree. Way back in the year 2000, something momentous happened. For the first time in British history, at 12 Downing Street, an Eid Milan party took place, an Eid gathering. And Tony Blair and then Home Secretary, um, what's his name? Can't remember his name now. Jack, Jack, sorry? Jack Straw, Jazakallah Khair. And he attended. And Tony Blair, when he came, he said that uh, the, the West has many misgivings about Islam. And it is a religion, Islam, a religion of peace, compassion, and kindness. And many Muslims, of course, like that. And that's tragic. Why? Because we always knew. Islam is a religion of peace, kindness, compassion, beauty, and so forth. It's a charitable religion. It's a way of life in submission to Allah, which tries to be helpful towards Allah's creation, God's creation, without compromising the grandeur, the majesty, the belief in Allah. And he said, Tony Blair, we have to rectify the false images created by a few. He had come to that event to express his gratitude for the work that Muslims had done in the United Kingdom. So I don't have to sit here and talk about the many contributions we have made. They know it at the highest level. Mr. Blair himself said so, that he is quite happy and grateful and acknowledges the meaningful, important contributions made by British Muslims. And then he said, together we can build community relations that the future government or generations will be proud of. Every Muslim and every human being will be proud of a society where Islam is applied properly. But sometimes it's not just the bad people coming in the way, it's us. We don't exhibit the true qualities on account of many reasons. We'll talk about that, inshallah. Then he said something. What he said, I respect Islam a lot. And I'm convinced that greater cooperation with Muslims is essential for a brighter future. So that's in the year 2000. Then what happened? Year 2001, a lot of riots took place in the summer up, in, up north in, in Bradford, Oldham, Burnley and so forth. And many heavy reports were produced. And that kind of incited or egged on or quickened the mind and imaginations of certain MPs. And Mr. Blunkett, of course, came to the fore. And he started talking. The Cantrell report was produced and he's talking. He said that this shows there needs to be a national debate on the rights and responsibilities of being a British citizen. So whether we want it or not, a national debate has been created, thrust upon us. Who are we as Muslims in Britain? What are we? How should we be perceived? What is our real contribution? Not what politicians are saying in, in speeches, out of diplomacy and so forth. 
There should be a national debate. A national debate usually means a, a sporadic programs here and there on the TV and radio and so forth, a few callers in a phone-in programs, people are talking, and a wide press coverage. Do we think for a moment that the press coverage is going to be unbiased? Or that we are going to be always adept at talking about Islam with truth and justice and balance? No. The debate has taken place. But when it comes down, what it comes down to is that at the end of the day, we are asked to explain to the wider community what are we and who are we. They won't define it for us. He said, Tony, uh, Mr. Blunkett, he said, how do people in the Asian community help the second and third generation feel British, belong and identify with Britain? So it's us. How do we make ourselves be acceptable to them? So let's not you know, kid ourselves. Let's not toy around. We have a very serious matter at hand. We can't close our eyes and pretend as if it's going to go away because we ignored it for a long time, sufficiently long enough time. He said, we have norms of acceptability. Very good. We, don't, we do want to fit in. We don't want to be like you know, retards in, a, in an intelligent society. You know, a pain in the backside of people. We have norms of acceptability and those who come into our home. Yes, Britain is the home of the British people. British nation and over the period of thousands of years there has been many migrations many bloody migrations the Celts who lived here before were expelled by the Anglo-Saxons and they were expelled by the Vikings and Norsemen and it carried on until of course the Norman invasion by that time the racial character was already set but it was a hodgepodge so who, who are we as a British are we talking about white and non-white so he said we have norms of acceptability and those who come into our home should accept these norms. We have tests we apply to future generations to make sure that they are part of that solution. We just want to sit back and ask, we are happy with that. And we own responsibility to become a fitting member of the community. So what are these norms and principles of values that we should buy into? Have you heard from a single politician in a meaningful manner, not vacuous, Ideals, a proper term used. What is this value? Truth? Is it truth? Is it justice? Is it compassion? What is it? Peace? What are these values, norms, that we should fit into? Yeah, you're talking about, they talked about enforced marriages. They talked about uh, genital mutilation. Well, alhamdulillah, Islam, Muslims may do to some extent, unfortunately, and it's wrong for them. Islam does not condone genital mutilation. Islam does not ever, in the slightest bit, support forced marriages. So are you saying, welcome to Britain, a land where we speak English, we don't force people to get married and not commit genital mutilation? Is that what you're saying? So the point is, there is a lack of powerful core values. And they don't want to admit it. Because they can't define it. And that's a tragic consequence of living in secular times with secularization going on all the time, with the market interests prevailing, that sooner or later, over a period of time, we forget enlightened thinking. So let's start. Okay, the ball is in our court. We have to explain ourselves. They're not going to tell us what are the principles. We will tell you. We are Muslims. We have a complete way of life. None of you do. And that's why some of your own people, non-Muslims, raising objections and concerns about American culture overtaking British culture. Hence, there are certain moves taken to prevent American film industry having their field day in British TV because of the Americanism that would take hold. So what is this British culture? We'll tell you, we have a complete way of life. Our, our, creed, our creed is distinct. Do you have a distinct creed? If we turn to the religions of other people, Catholics or Protest Protestants, Look at your creed books. Is that ad abided by in a properly? Only last year, I think, one of the uh, priests got told off, chastised, for daring to say that the devil or the demon is a real entity. Okay. That's your creed. You do believe in the devil or the Satan, but you can't explain that to be a real being, a created being of God. Some figment of the imagination, your evil tendency, it's all philosophy. 
We have a distinct creed, and the outcome we hope for is success in this life and paradise, a place of eternal happiness forever. Eternity, that, that which no eyes have seen, no ears have heard, and no hearts have conceived. I would like to be in a place like that. Some things are worth dying for. You know, it's not extremist talk, but I have to have a meaning in life. And I want to know I, I didn't die in vain. I have to know that I died for something which Allah likes. God, the creator, cherisher, nourisher, sustainer, likes. He will help me. And although I went through pain in this life, and abuse, ostracizing and so forth. No. But people will become careless, unfortunately. Ya ayyuhal insanu ma kareem. O you, O mankind, what has made you careless of your Lord? It is this carelessness we want to fight as British Muslims. We're not trying to be Pakistanis in Britain or Arabs in Britain. We want to be British. And many people are reverts, are converts. And one of the concerns I heard from some of the uh, revert Muslims, inshallah, is that they said, okay, you can, if you're kicked out, go back to your countries because you have some roots there. Your grandfather or great-grandparents come from such countries. Where do we go? What happens to us? And being white and English does not save you. Today one brother was talking to me about how he got sacked after 9-11 precisely because of him being a Muslim. But he could not bring the law into play because religious discrimination could not be applied to a Caucasoid like him. So Omar, Radiranhu, he commented on this ayah and he said, it is ignorance. It is ignorance, not knowledge. So if there, there is extremism, and I have to add, there is extremism in us, some of us. Unbalanced behavior, talk, you know, we exhibit poor character. Is it coming from Islam? Well, if we hadn't bothered before, it's, it's time we bothered now. Now we are under scrutiny. Now we are under focus. And any time we pass away, whether due to oppression or a blissful death on the, on the bed, we will have to meet Allah. And Allah has taught us many things already in the Quran and Sunnah. We are not entirely ignorant. So, yes, ignorance, but it's because we choose to be ignorant, it seems. Because in the West, whether because we are more uh, educated, that we can read and write better, or it's because of the internet, any spectrum of these things, we are better able to know about Islam. And we do know, on average, better about Islam. One of the surprising things is that if a person comes from Bangladesh or Pakistan, some parts of Pakistan, let's say the, the rich part of Lahore or downtown Karachi, they are amazed by the number of sisters who walk in the streets of London with hijab on. They say, oh, it's more than in our country. And you are in Britain. It is not ignorance, it's willful ignorance. That's what is so hurting and so damaging. And it's Satan who makes us ignorant. Well, what we have to understand as an unshakable view is what Ibn Qayyim, Ash-Shakibi, other scholars have said. They said that all that is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah per se, in absolute sense, is in accordance with the human interest. It's for the benefit of mankind. People may scoff because we don't understand the intricacies, all the parameters that are taken into account by the wisdom of Allah, His knowledge, when He gives us an item of law. How are we supposed to fathom out the reasons behind why Allah stipulates that, Allah stipulates this. We may know some of it. Sometimes He tells us, but not always. So all that is in the Quran and the Sunnah is per se in accordance with human interest at large. For the Creator knows and wants what is best for human beings. And that's the belief we must never get rid of. That's the belief which has evaporated over a thousand years of so-called the period of enlightenment through the European history historical experience. Those who follow the Messenger وسلم, the unlettered prophet, whom they find mentioned in their own scriptures, in the law and the gospel. This is a translation of Ayah 157 of Surah Al-Araf, the seventh chapter. For he commands them what is just, and he forbids them what is evil. He allows them as lawful what is good and pure, and prohibits them from what is bad and impure. Which part of this can we deny? A compromise. Is there anything in Islam we are prepared to believe that Allah sent down in the Quran and the Sunnah is unworthy, dirty, objectionable? No. But Alhamdulillah, 
Allah has made the religion easy. He hasn't made life hard for us. Not everything is obligatory and there's enough scope within the deen, within his framework and principles to adapt. And that's where our scholars and teachers come in. I can't do it. Perhaps some of you can. Majority of us can't. But our teachers are expected to. To explain to us properly and nicely, kindly, how can we adapt? We need to adapt without compromising any of the principles of Islam, any of the fundamental articles of faith. So people lose this clear vision of Islam, understanding very simple. It's like a sister phoned me up yesterday and had a long chat on the phone regarding some fake issue. And I got so many phone calls, unfortunately, and I'm the least qualified for taking these phone calls, but they keep on phoning me. And in the, in the, in the conversation, we're talking about these things, um, some fake matter, and the issue was very simple. Can we cheat the kafir? No. Well, I knew that, she said. But brothers were saying, I said, look, you turned to me thinking I'm a scholar, and you already knew the answer, and that's the case with the majority of the Muslims. We know some things in Islam by necessity. Islam does not allow us to cheat, to be deceitful, to be thieves, to be liars, to steal, to beg unnecessarily, to depend upon the kafirun and then mock them, to be on the dole on purpose and not work, and then say, look at their system, it's awful, isn't it? To come to this country as asylum seekers and then plot things against the interests of this nation. No. So we lose common sense understanding, simple understanding. We dilute either, either we dilute ourselves into the community, lose our identity and become like, you know, one of them, meaning with no identity. Which one? What do you mean by one of them? The skinhead? The punk rocker? I mean, what, what do you mean? Like the, the aristocrats? You know, which, which part? Or we become isolationists. Peter Hayne might be told of being racist and racist in his comment, but I agree. Some of us are very isolationists, aren't we? We know it. You see it. You go to some parts of England, some, some parts of towns, and you wonder, have they been living in England for 20 years? You wonder. So let's face the reality with true faith and courage. Let's not try to hide under a blanket pretending we haven't got a problem. They might have grasped the matter wrongly, but we have a problem. So the idea is not that, that we dilute ourselves or we become isolationists and form ghettos. The idea is that we have to define the Islamic personality, and that's what Mr. Blunkett is asking for. Yes, we have a problem, but I can't give you the solution. You tell us, but we're telling you. We are Muslims, we want to follow the Quran and the Sunnah, which is a benefit for everyone, because we desire the best for humanity. As a Muslim, our heart yearns for the guidance of everyone. We want no child, no mother to shed a tear, because their child, children were abducted and then killed. And then been asked, well, you know, maybe we should have to vet every person who works with children. After the event, when the horse has bolted, you know, then lock the door. What produces people like this? They're, they're asking, what pro produces people like the shoe bomber, having grown up in this country? We say, what produces people like this as well, who go to Hungerford and shoots 15 old children like that? Not, not Hungerford, Dumblain. They are the flowers of this country, little girls, boys, innocent children, sinless. Something wrong. So we have to understand Islam, its principles, explain. And secondly, we have to uphold those principles. Seek to establish them in our lives. So it's got to be an active undertaking. And the sciences of Islam are there, sciences of Islam, all the branches of the knowledge, and that's what the scholars are expected to do. They are expected to tell us what are the changeable things, what are the unchangeable things. What cannot be compromised and what we can bend and shoehorn or adapt and modify and transform. Because surely it is not right, not, not right, what I meant to say, surely it is not a necessity that many of you are wearing white hats. Alhamdulillah, part of the sunnah to cover our heads. But must I wear that hat? I'm not having to guard anybody. I don't have to wear this. I mean like this. I could wear an English hat, no problem. I can just wear this one, it's not a problem. The point is, some of us think that to be Islamic and look Islamic, I have to wear a certain type of garb. Why not? The British style hat. It's covering your head, it fulfills the purpose. What's wrong with that? So there are certain things which we can adapt, compromise, change. There's nothing wrong.
So I'll read something here from Ibn Qayyim, a translation from one of his books, a short passage. It says, The principles and the basis of the Sharia concerning the rulings and human interest in this life and the hereafter are all founded on justice, grace, human good, and wisdom. Okay, if I know that, I want to find out what they are and apply them. Every situation which moves from justice to tyranny, from grace to hardship, from goodness to corruption, from wisdom to absurdity, has nothing to do with the Sharia. Ibn Qayyim. Many things we do, look at the results and the, the, the counter-reaction, the effect it produces. From a good situation to a bad situation, okay, we can excuse saying it was a miscalculation in the beginning. But you can repeat it? What do we say then? We are fools. But some of us will say, no, no, we are being strict, strictly Islamic. I'll carry on doing the same miscalculation. No. He actually says, it's, the, it's this sharia, the wisdom of Allah, which, embodies, which is embodied in the sharia, which proves his existence. And he said the best evidence for the authenticity of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa So we have to behave in a good way, that is all. We have to start behaving like Muslims according to the sunnah. And that will then, inshallah, charm the hearts and minds of everyone around us, Hindu, Christian, Jew, Buddhist, because they will see the Islamic values. We don't have to do anything sinful, but do something righteous, inshallah ta'ala. Why the sunnah? Because, just one hadith, otherwise the talk is very good. I've got 22 pages here. I've got to cover that in one hour, inshallah. One hadith. All my nation, as the Prophet said, وسلم, all my nation will enter paradise except he who refuses. Well, who refuses, Ya Rasulullah? He who follows me enters paradise and he who disobeys me, he refuses. Very simple. Who doesn't know this? We have to dig deep to find this out? No. It's available in very many common sources and translations and many, many books. That's the principle. I have to, inshallah, do my best to follow the sunnah. And if I do, then I know I'm going to be favored. The sunnah is a favor for the Muslims. The sunnah frees us from self-imposed difficulties, complications, straight, easy. And the people will experience his goodness. Is there one person who complained about the character of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Did even his enemies complain that he's untrustworthy or we can't rely on him or that he'll prove to be abusive or nothing? Didn't they like him? They entrusted him with many responsibilities. The sunnah restores many forgotten truths. It is something natural. It is something universal. It is a mercy to mankind. And for each of these statements I'm making, in a glib manner perhaps, there is proof. Ayat upon ayat and hadith after hadith, which you know inshallah. And moreover, the truth will prevail over all other ideologies. Islam, to follow Islam is to be on the winning side, winning team. I might misplay, I might score my own goals, but I'm still on, my, on the winning side. And Islam is going to triumph, inshallah, sooner or later. And we know that the character of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was impeccable a model to be followed. So we have no recourse but to follow the sunnah. And the messenger said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, uktub, fawalladhi nafsi biyadih, ma kharaja minni illa al-haq. Write. For nothing ever comes out of this. Nothing emanates from here except the truth. We have to have that conviction. Otherwise, how do we perform? There is no point. Tony Blair will not tell us how to be a Muslim, although he respects it a lot. And us being ignorant and, wish, and people of wishful thinking will not define it for him either by trying to be half British and half Munafik and half Kafir and half Muslim. And the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and it is so useful to us, for us to know this. This was like as, a mission, as if a mission statement. And this is the mission statement we carry with us, inshallah, hopefully, by everyone who works in the organization and the teachers who come and so forth. What did he say in English, inshallah? I will, I will not try to read the Arabic. Give them glad tidings and don't make them flee. It was said to two companions, Mu'ad ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu. Both went off to a country primarily inhabited by non-Muslims, mainly of Judeo-Christian extraction. A bit like our situation, here we are, but not two of us, two million of us. What do we do about it? We make life difficult. We give them bad news. Entirely the opposite. 
Give them glad tidings. Give them hope. Show them how Islam can bring about so much the end of misery. All those, you know, I went to a, um, I do taekwondo, martial arts, some form, I try to. I, I make believe I do it anyway. Anyway, there you go. So I went with some of the non-Muslim colleagues uh, to, um, to a, a dinner. And there we are, and on the table, what are we talking about? Nobody is talking about the Muslim extremist or the suicide bomber or even Palestine, which is so much in the news. All of them were talking about, look at the situation in the schools. Look at the rail system, the railway, the national transport, these kind of things. Look at the truancy, look at the bullying that goes on, look at all these kind of things. And look at so many mothers you know, who are dispossessed of their houses because the house is being repossessed by the mortgage agencies, building society or what have you. We can bring so much hope. But we don't. We don't engage, we don't talk, we don't converse, we don't mix. They don't mix with us, we don't mix with them. No. We are proposing, we have to go out of our way to mix with them. Even though they snub us, we go out and say, hello, how are you? And start making friends. Because we have something to offer which will make them feel liberated from the oppression that all of us are under, Muslims and non-Muslims. And the messenger said, sorry, to complete the hadith, he said, uh, give them glad tidings and do not make them flee. Make things easy. Don't make them difficult. Obey each other or love one another and don't differ amongst yourselves. And we do, it seems, many of us, entirely the opposite of these things. And the messenger said, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Bu'ithu bil samha. I have been sent with the easy way of monotheism, the true way of worshipping Allah. Easy, straightforward. So perhaps what we have to look at is some of the values like sincerity. As we know the hadith, Ad-Din al-Nasiha, I think everybody knows it. Alhamdulillah. What is nasiha to Allah before we move on to other things? What is nasiha to Allah? What does it entail? One of the imams, Al-Qurtubi, he discussed it in his tafsir book and he was mentioning. Out of five, two matters he mentioned was seeking all that he loves and avoiding all that he hates. Well, don't we know that Allah loves for a Muslim to invite others to Islam? And Allah loves for a person to come back to the deen? How much he loves that? Allah is more happy with that than if I was to lose my camel and all my belongings in the desert and I lose all hope and I fall asleep and then I wake up and suddenly find the camel tethered to my tree. I'm exuberant, I'm exhilarated. Allah is even more happy than that. So we have the opportunities. We speak the language. Many of us are born, brought up here for generations. Yet we don't engage in meaningful, compassionate da'wah. And look at how much the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, I wouldn't say exhausted himself, but suddenly he suffered inside. He felt pain, anguish, that the people for whom you know, he, he wishes the very best are pushing him aside. Allah comforted him, sent an ayat to comfort him. So we, should have to, we need to have real feeling inside that look, this religion is not a selfish thing. It is about me being engaged in society, working with the people to better the lives of everyone. But as a Muslim on Islamic values, for the sake of Allah. Like when we feed people, we do not feed but for the sake of Allah. Like this. Aren't there starving people in this country? Don't you think there are thousands of non-Muslim families in Britain below the poverty line? And we don't do a, lift a finger to support them as Muslims. And the Jews, and they, are, they should be admired and respected for this. The Jews raise more money for charity, being lesser in number than us, and supposedly more greedy than us, than we do. In Britain, it's a statistical fact. And here we are, Muslims, generous people who do less. But we moan about Lord Sainsbury sending money to Israel, or Marks and Spencer's doing something. No. Bring some balance back. Let's think very deeply where we are standing today with our deen. And Imam al-Nawawi, he said, Muslim loves for a non-Muslim what he loves for himself, that is, to accept Islam. Whether something is allowed or not is not the issue. Because I might be allowed to, for example, let me just pick a, an action out of the hat, because it springs to mind readily, as it happens frequently, I'm allowed to go and uh, put up a bill poster, you know, stick a poster on a, on a lamppost somewhere. 
Okay, nothing against the law, I, I can do that. It's not really strictly vandalism, but it's annoying perhaps. Is that something attractive to the people and draws them to Islam, do you think? If I do that, do you really think so? If I put up a poster on a public footpath somewhere and say, coming next to you, next year, the Khilafah. I might be allowed to do that. I, I, my, my intention is pure. And I want to show my zeal for Allah. Do you think that is the way to do, attract people? So, Umar radiallahu anhu, you know, one of the ayat, two of the ayat in the Quran, Amilatun nasiba tasla naran hamia. He burst out weeping. Umar radiallahu anhu, this grown up man. Because he cares as a true Muslim, a staunch, strict Muslim, he cares for the guidance of people. And when he sees a monk, that's when he cried. He saw this Christian mendicant, you know, someone given to the service unto his Lord. He cried, look, he's toiling on so hard, weary, laboring to the fire. Isn't that tragic? Brings tears to my eyes. And he cried, wept openly. We don't feel that way. We are full of cynicism and sarcasm and sneerism, uh, sneer and, and that's about it. And, by, and we think by sneering and shouting and criticizing we have done our bit of showing our zeal or metal for Islam. No. True Islam would be found in the hadith where it says he's not a Muslim who eats his fill and his neighbor lies hungry. And these non-Muslims, if there are non-Muslims in our, in our backyard, they are our neighbors. And one of the talks will be by Sheikh Anwar al-Awlaki, inshallah ta'ala, I think. I hope I haven't got the speaker's name wrong. It will be about the rights of neighbors. It could be Muhammad al-Sharif, I think, now thinking about it. There was a treaty of Fudul. I'm not going to go through the entire thing there. Just one of the hadith, a hadith, inshallah, that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is reported to have said on one occasion, I witnessed in the home of Abdullah ibn Jud'an. He was a very magnanimous, hospitable person who liked to treat his guest generously. Abdullah ibn Jud'an. I witnessed in the home of Abdullah ibn Jud'an a treaty to which I would have responded positively if, during Islam, I had been invited to participate in it. So it was a long time ago, actually it was 20 years before he was commissioned with prophethood, which we might know. So something happened way back in time. It was a glorious thing. In Britain they talk about the glorious revolution when William of Orange came over and took over the government because it was blood, bloodless. A bloodless coup type thing. The parliament invited him to come over. Didn't want a Catholic king. Okay. We have our glorious episodes in Islam as well. And we can tie it to British history. And somehow see how we can bring value. What happened? What was in that, in that treaty that went? What happened? One of the person was Al-Zubair ibn Abdul Muttalib. He said, those who go around the Kaaba will know that we reject injustice. They stood up to make, up, make that voice. Well, make that voice now. Now when war is impending on Iraq, a nation impoverished and tortured to death, millions of them over the years, more than 10 years, and all for exploitation of resources. If the same thing was to happen to non-Muslims in a non-Muslim country, we should show the same kind of feeling that it is unjust. We are not prepared to sit back and be happy about children being starved to death so we can get cheaper oil. Even if they're Jews being subjected to such tyranny. So those who go around the Kaaba will know that we reject injustice and will prevent all things shameful. So the protected neighbor and the unprotected neighbor, stranger, are safe amongst us. So this is how they stood up. And this is what Muhammad was talking about, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If we had another opportunity to build another founding, foundation on that, I would join in. And they said, for so long as the sea makes the wool wet, and the mountains of Habir and Hira remain firmly set in their place, we will abide by this to help the, the needy, the oppressed. And I thought jihad was all about supporting the oppressed and not terrorism. Was I kidding myself? And they said they would comfort people as long as they're alive. Many people in this country need comforting. Many non-Muslims need comforting as well. 
and they are our friends and neighbours. And we don't extend any word of sympathy towards them. Your neighbour might pass away and he would not even say, you know, I'm sorry, and you know, shall I bring you some meal for you? Because you don't, you don't feel like cooking today. We don't, do, we don't have that relationship. So what we have to do is to be very objective and do things which are of benefit, that's all. We can sit and talk about academic stuff, we can sit and postulate many opinions, and we can throw out many wonderful maxims for the people to digest, and we can look tall in the eyes of the others. But at the end of the day, we have to, what we have to do is something plain, clear-cut, guaranteed a result, inshallah. So it's based on a very simple hadith. Hadith of Nu'man ibn Bashir, radiallahu anhu, where he quotes the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam saying which we all know that the halal is bayan evident and clear and the haram is bayan and between the two are certain matters about which not many people know the mushtabihat doubtful matters leave the doubtful matters it's not so much wara'a as hikmah not so much piety as wisdom it's survival technique so what is mushtabihat, doubtful? Imam Ahmed, he said, it's a grade between halal and haram. Maybe it's permissible, maybe it's not, maybe it's good, maybe it's... Okay, 50-50, this way or that way. You know, quite a few quotations I have got here, no need to go through all of them. That's what it means essentially. And the scholars there agree that Muslims are obliged to preserve their honor and good reputation. We are obliged, it's an obligation. I can't, you know, willfully be a silly person and appear, you know... Like an idiot, a stupid man. If I get carried away and do that, it's a mistake. But not as a policy, not as a daily kind of feature of my life, my character. If I got carried away, who doesn't? That's a one-off thing. But it seems some of us are hell-bent on actually being stupid all the time as a method of doing da'wah. You will know those people. You will see those people. We are obliged and the messenger said, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, truly lost are they who are extreme. With a nati'un. Lost are they who are extreme. In hadith in Sahih Muslim. We don't want to be extreme. It's not a fashionable thing to do. It doesn't bring credit to anyone. It spoils it for everyone. And Allah does not like it. Allah does not want us to be excessive in anything. And the messenger, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, never ever taught us to be excessive. In fact, there are many hadith on many occasions that teach us how when people went overboard out of good intention, they were, that tendency was curbed. So who we are, what we are as Muslims, we have to define inshallah as people who know the current context in which we live. We live in a globalized environment. All the markets are coming together as one village market and everything is being eroded away. All the ancient values, even labor rights are which were harder and over hundreds of years are being weaned away. And we are slowly getting into a police state, like it or not, through many excuses. It's bound to happen. We need such a police state in order for the world globalization to work, for the markets to operate. And sovereignty will become something you throw away because it's a barrier to the marketing enterprises. It has to. It's logical. It's nothing irrational about what they're asking for. And we don't have a voice, not a comment to make. And life just merrily goes on, we're making our money, and then one day we find, oh no, another noose has been put on our neck and slightly tightened. We just moan and complain. As Muslims in Britain, we have rights to practice Islam, not to rule by the Sharia. But we can pray, fast, go to you know, Hajj, pay zakat, do what we like with the zakat, not give to terrorists. But who does? Nobody, I'm sure. Nobody gives money to terrorists, except the madmen and the fools and the terrorists themselves. We have a right to knowledge. We can learn Islam. The very fact this is taking place in Britain, this is our right. And they're giving it to us. They're cooperating. All the non-Muslim staff are very happy to cooperate and put up signs and be very cordial. We have a right to find, found organizations. Here we are, an organization, registered charity, orphan aid, brother sitting there, AFI, all of these organizations. You have a right. You can go abroad, dispense your money, come back. They're not saying, no, give it to us first. We have a right to appeal to the law. On equal basis, racism is there, discrimination is there, all sort of. It's not part of the law. So let's realize that things are not ideal. We are not here to compromise the faith, but we are grateful for the many rights that we have, 
And part of being a good Muslim is to be grateful to mankind in turn. No, no person really thanks Allah unless he thanks people. So where is that gratitude? Gratitude is not by compromising the deen, but gratitude is by building solid, meaningful relationships which benefits each other on Islamic terms. So we can freely practice a religion and so forth. So we are not asked really to go and go and sin as such. Those things which we have to do, again, our teachers and scholars will tell us. Is this an exception to what extent we can bend the rules as an exception out of necessity and so forth? But generally, you're not asked to go to the pub. It might detract from your career prospects if you didn't go to the pub and party during Christmas time. But are you obliged to? No. So there are difficulties. They don't ask you to be homosexual, although they legalize it. They eat in your heart and you can say to each other, it's wrong, it's vile, it's contemptuous, it's sinful. They're not forcing it upon you. So we have to be actively involved. Faith is a trust, and this trust needs to be fulfilled in Britain for us as British Muslims. And it's not done by being isolationists or by being those who dilute themselves. So there are some ayat which I'm not going to read now, they will take up too much time, which talk about how we have to fulfill our agreements. And if you can later on perhaps ask the, the sheikhs and the teachers about these ayat and hadith explanations, inshallah. There are a number of ayat which tell us, obligate us to fulfill all contracts. Like it or not, if, you are, if we are a British citizen, we have a contract, written or unwritten, understood. Contract. But nationality, citizenship, loyalty, allegiance, we might not disagree. As a person of conscience, you might disagree to even participate in certain acts and go to prison for it. Many people went to prison during the Vietnam War and there were Christians and non-Muslims on, on grounds of principle. It doesn't make them treacherous to their country. So we have to fulfill obligations and we have to know that by having a British passport you know, we are under some kind of contractual agreement. What that means for us, ask the teachers. But we can't ignore that fact. Can't explain away and say, well, I know about what's this. I owe no oath to my, the queen. Who is the queen? I don't care. It's just words. In that case, don't expect anything back in return from them. Because we have come into their home, either by choice or we're born into it. The seerah, I was going to refer to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, but time is short to go through the entire episode. Treaty of Hudaybiyah, of course, it seemed counterproductive to the interests of Muslims. That if one of us go over to your side, you can keep him and he can settle there, it's no problem. But if one of you come to our side, well, you know, we have to send him back. How can that be just? But that, that's what it was, part of the agreement. If a Muslim came from Mecca to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ was obliged to send him back to Mecca, to the jaws of the enemy. And one case, it happened, he was sent back. Contract, can't break the contract. Agreement. Tacit or open, we have an agreement. And we better learn to live with that, understanding it, what it means, instead of ignoring it. That's part of our learning Muslim identity. So, some things like that. But in essence, inshallah, in this country, as Muslims, alhamdulillah, I think we all know, we cannot stay in this country if we are going to just become a non-Muslim. There are many ways of becoming a non-Muslim. We cannot stay in this country, we just want to have a job and live and, and, and play and, be, and adopt their culture and forget and neglect Islam. No. In fact, scholars are unanimous to a large degree. I can't say absolutely because I, mean, I don't know if such things happen nowadays. Total ijma. But we can say to a large extent, scholars are unanimous that Muslims are not permitted to stay in a non-Muslim country unless they're engaged in da'wah. And we as British Muslims in Britain, when we do da'wah, it's not, oi, believe in God. No. no. We have to come out of that, understand a bit more sophisticated way. You know, country's culture, its history, its traditions, its likes, dislikes, what makes them take, what doesn't. And it's easy for us. We might not participate in all of them, some of them we can, without being sinful. Have we explored them? You know, one of the uh, points that they're considering about the oath of allegiance, part of the citizenship pledge, we must know this, inshallah. 
to be British, you know, if a refugee comes, asylum seeker, you know, he has to swear something or stand by something, what's he going to say? Well, he has to, he has to have language skills. He must speak English. Well, good. And he must have knowledge about British society. These are requirements of citizenship. Well, Allah has said in the Quran, we did not send any messenger except to teach in the language of his own people. It is shameful, it's defective, it is lacking on our part that we live in this country and we don't even try to learn English. How do we then do da'wah? That does not negate the fact we should learn Arabic. That's different. But we should speak English. And we don't need no Tony, uh, Mr. Blanky to say so. Because we are Muslims, we live in this country. I want to convey the, the truth of Islam. I want to be able to speak English. Those who can't, having tried, they have excuse. What's my excuse? Having lived 10, 20, 30 years. Now, we must learn to speak English and English, speak English well. Uh, not, not take courses in English literature and stuff like that, but you know, just start communicating and speaking and so forth. The government put out a white paper called Secure Borders, Safe Haven for Asylum Seekers and so forth. And what they said in there is that part of the, the pledge for this thing will be, I will respect the rights and freedoms of the United Kingdom. I will uphold its democrat democratic values. I bet half the people of Britain themselves don't know what is democracy. Because 70% don't even vote, non-Muslims. Because they know it's a farce. They know it when Tony Blair comes in on a landslide victory, he comes in on a minority vote and the vast proportion of British nation, public, are not the least bit interested in this. They know it makes no difference. They know that. So the result is it's like, you know, it's a pretense as if, you know, the, the rest of British society understands about democracy and this and that and so on. No. But we can, we can bring some discussion into this because otherwise we're going to be left to be the people who don't buy into such enlightened values. British public do, but you immigrants and you second, you know, those asylum seekers and so forth, you have to show that how democratic you are. They don't have to, but they don't understand either, but that's, not, that's really irrelevant. So this is how, you know, we have the problems, that they have thrust the burden on us. We can't sit back and pretend as if things are just, just carry on. Let me read you a quote from a U.S. commentator, Michael Lind, his name is. And he points out about fundamentalism. He says, religious fundamentalism exists across the spectrum of Western politics. From the anti-rationalist, anti-technology, green movement, to President George W. Bush himself. So intelligent people who are perceptive, who've got, you know, who are on the ball, they understand, they know what's going on. Who are the extremists? Who during the 2000 presidential campaign named his favorite philosopher as Jesus Christ, alayhi salam. It's very wrong for somebody called the Taliban to say something like that, that uh, Muhammad وسلم, is his role model. But when Mr. Bush says Jesus Christ is his greatest philosopher, we say that's okay, he's upholding democracy. So who is better in speech, as Allah says in the Qur'an, than the one who calls men to Allah and works righteousness? And then says, I am of those who bow in Islam. So let us understand something very quickly, time is running short, that European history is a history of much turmoil, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of interfaith killings between Christians themselves, different factions. Expulsions, burnings, and all sorts of things took place a lot, a lot, lot for a long, long time. They grew up through this upheaval over a long period of time, and they settled down upon certain ideals and values for what they thought is best for them, and it was the best for them, given the circumstances. It starts with a process called the Enlightenment process. After the Reformation, something called the Enlightenment process. I won't go through all of them. I've got seven points, seven cardinal points about Enlightenment. One of them is that religious doctrines have no place in the understanding of the physical and human worlds. So that's the mental makeup, the byproduct that you see of people. Religious doctrines, hence Christianity is also in the sidelines, always appeasing the secular foundations. Religious doctrines have no place in the understanding of the physical and human worlds. So a lot of people came along. There was this phenomenon called the humanism phenomena. Basically, 
Trust in God was replaced by trust in the human mind. And what people say, the philosophers say, goes. Like it or not, that's the society we live in. They distill certain ideas through ages and discussion and so forth, and those ideals are embedded in their conscience. And they work on them. And they're trying to come to terms on how to deal with them in the current age of globalization, which has brought Muslims and other cultures into their country. I had a whole page of stuff regarding how bit by bit things came along. Um, For example, somebody called John Locke, I've skipped half a page, so you know, I'm being merciful, inshallah. John Locke, he, he talks about education, how education is what shapes the human character. That's probably my phone, and I should have told everyone to shut their phones before starting. Anyway, that's not my phone. Okay. John Locke, the education above everything else was responsible for forging the moral character of a person. And that idea prevails today, even down to this day. Education shapes the person. So how the tale of the education is how we are going to be. The current debate about education is how we can churn out people. That's what the education debate is about. Reformation of the secondary education so the students are fit in this globalized world as fitting candidates for the market. And you think that's done without any planning? Just happened? No forward thinking? And then, of course, as days wore by, people came along, other rational people and so forth. Religion itself had to be rational. That's the one-page one. Very quick. I mean, it's amazing. Once you start getting into it, you understand the basis of this civilization. It's not based on thin air. It's based on something. But it's full of holes. But that's the best they could do. What have we got to offer? That's where we fit in. But unless we know what they have got, we don't know what to offer. Man says he wants to buy a car, we are, so we say, I've got the best truck for you. you know, what's that good to him? Then came, of course, uh, some people here. Voltaire was one of them. And with his arguments in his book, he talked about how secular values should take precedence over religious values. And that's what happened. A pluralistic society is needed, was needed, maybe I should say, to stop the bloodletting between the Christian factions. So all religions are equal. All of you can practice. But none of you have authority. That's our pluralistic society. Isn't that good in some ways? Yes, it is. There is some good in it, but maybe it's like wine. Is there some good in it? But then what happens after that? And this is why the Muslims come in. They don't deny the goodness in it. But they have to make sure they can explain the benefits and the pitfalls. David Hume came along, this British philosopher, and he talked about moral relativism. You know, that no individual is in a position to pass judgment on you know, alternative moral systems. Hence, everything's fine. And Adam Smith came along later on. You must know about this name, this name. Division of labor and this and that and so forth. So industrialization took place. So whether it's scientific revolution, industrial revolution, enlightenment, reformation, all these fancy terms, we are living in a society, in a civilization, which is based on certain foundations which are not neatly sitting on Islam. And that's why we come in. So let me talk about schools now, inshallah, very quickly. We are pained because as Muslims, we know the amount of respect we build in uh, among in children for parents. How we are supposed to respect our teachers for Allah's sake. We don't even call an elder brother by his name, by his first name. And we'll say something, brother or uncle or bai in Urdu or something or Bengali. Chacha, I mean, we will use something, akhi. We don't call them by name. It's crude, at least, we say, even though it's permitted. But look at the situation. There is a report, a white paper. I don't know why they keep on calling it a white paper, because it's up for discussion, I think. It's not marked up yet into, with black ink or something. But the white paper. The schools achieving success, white paper. It's a big, thick thing. You can read all of, all of it on the web, by the way. And that paper it talks about how we have to encourage parents to take responsibility for their children's behavior. Why? This is a problem. And Islam teaches us that he is not of us. You know, who can do, do not respect our elders. Do not show kindness to our young ones. Do not respect our scholars. And these kind of things. So many hadith like that. So why aren't we explaining and showing these or exhibiting these? Because many Muslim children are part of the problem. They are. 
Bullying, you know, at least 16 people in Britain are killed, uh, uh, they're committing suicide. Pupils, young boys. And Japan is well known for the high suicide rate. They have a special garden where they go and kill themselves, mainly the lovers and so forth. But you know, in Britain, at least 16 youngsters kill themselves because of bullying. And it's not our problem? It is our problem. Our children go to the same schools. And perhaps my son is a bully. Do I just overlook that? And you know what? Teachers, lecturers, they phone up the bully helpline because they are bullied. 20% of the calls, 6,000 cases per year. The largest group of callers to the UK National Workplace for Bullying advice line are by the teachers themselves. Our kids, our children are beating us up. Can you imagine? And we, we don't feel aggrieved about that. We feel sad. We should do. We should feel concerned. We should participate. Maybe some of us should become, you know, uh, you know like, the, like on the uh, parents' board of uh, school governors and so on. We need to do this. This is what I mean by getting engaged with Muslim values. Do some mentoring work in the community. You know, I've, 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 I'm not boasting, but it's like I'm doing my little bit, tiny fragment, and I'm others doing much more. I have now under, uh, undertaken mentoring role in a local school in Ipswich, uh, a non-Muslim school, and I want to make it a point to them, I want to be given a non-Muslim child to mentor. If I can bring a non-Muslim child to a better path, even though he doesn't become a Muslim, I will feel fulfilled, satisfied, happy, I've helped somebody, and a non-Muslim, because I'm a Muslim. So don't be, don't be driven by hate all the time. Wala and bara and these things we understand, but sometimes out of context in an unbalanced way. Bullying. Truancy. 12,000 children, truancy. Some as young as seven. And half of them or more are accompanied by adults. Subhanallah. Parents are taking their kids off school to go in the shopping center and look at what? Consumerism. And there are 900 truancy petrol, petrols in 34 local education authorities. It's part of the government policy. You know, really, it gets a bit boring to carry on like this, doesn't it? But, you know, after all, these are like pages and pages. I've scoured through about 30, 40 newspaper clippings. It's an ongoing thing for the whole of this year. And the House of Commons, they're debating and telling the chief inspector, Mike Tomlinson, that, you know, we have to highlight the seriousness of truancy condoned by adults. Well, let them know the Muslims do not condone truancy. That is why they want Muslim schools to be an example school, beacon schools, as, we, as I like to say, to non-Muslims, welcome to join our schools. Help us. Because Mr. Blanket says he wants to support you know, the Steiner schools. There's another, I will talk about Steiner if we have time. Steiner schools, an alternative for parents. What are Muslim schools? Tony Blair, you know, criticize the colluding of parents in truancy. They're all in involved, they're all talking. Where is the Muslim voice? Youth crimes, do you know? 50,000 crimes a day are committed by school-going children. Do you think there's not a single Muslim involved in that? We know of Muslims who are selling drugs in our back streets. Should we just phone up the police and tell them? Maybe we should. But perhaps there's something more we can do following their enlightened ideals, education. Let's educate those Muslim youths that this is wrong. You're hurting people, yourself to start with, before Allah, and you might burn in hell. You know, a big section on that. Unruly parents. Leslie Ward was one of the uh, intake uh, primary school in Doncaster. She said, an assault on a teacher is an assault on education, and an assault on the education is an assault on the very foundation of society. So there are some people of right-thinking mind. But what foundation are we talking about? Let the Muslim come in and explain. Estelle Morris, the Education Secretary, she said, how can we expect people, pupils, to respect teachers if the parents don't? Why don't we let Estelle Morris come and say on Radio 4 that we have a lesson to learn from the Muslim parents? He talks about rise in attacks on, on the social service workers. Many, many things, anyway. So many things. He talks, she talks about a hardcore of feckless parents and we have to break the cycle of disrespect. Many things. A thousand pound fine. So many things, you know. Nine out of ten teachers surveyed said it was harder to control parents than their children. This is British society. And we're not sneering. We're not being sarcastic. We're not saying, oh, look how corrupt and bad you are. We are, no. 
This is our society, we are part of you, we want to help, and we need to help all of us. Because in that process, our kids are saved as well, and we please Allah for being righteous. As Sultan teaches, full-time police backup in schools, Estelle Morris is saying, she's saying, what I want is for schools to have a relationship with the police. Schools should not work at arm's length from the police. SubhanAllah. We've come to that now, have we? We thought it was part of the American movie stuff in the olden days, you know. Uh, Robocops in a classroom controlling kids. Now we're saying the same thing. Cops in schools. Why? Because they're unrulable, unruly, unmanageable. And the Muslims have no contributions to make? I don't believe that. I can't believe that. That we can't make a contribution. Because right at the beginning I said, as we know, Mr. Blair and Blanket and all the rest of them know about how much contributions we make. We pay our taxes. There are many intelligent doctors, heart surgeons and scientists and even blank clerks and bus drivers. No, our greatest contribution comes from this moral side. A distinct creed, clear outlook, and we know what we're talking about. Uh, let me finish this page. I'll, I'll skip the whole page. Just one, one thing there. You know, they did a, 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 an analysis of what causes this lad culture in the schools. Lad culture. You know what they said the main causes are? Magazines. It encourages boys to an anti-work culture. And guess what? In Islam, we are told that in principle, begging is haram. It's better for me to chop some wood, take my axe, chop some wood, go to the marketplace and sell, than to beg, reach out my hand, whether people give me or not. Anti-work culture. And if we ingrain these values in the hearts and minds of children, Muslims and non-Muslims, as a Muslim in a society, it benefits everyone. At least wins the praises of some people. That's not our intention, but it does. So things like that, you know. Many things they talk about, inshallah. So I'm going to bring my talk down around to a close, inshallah, now. Basically, I've, I've spoken a lot. Basically, we as Muslims in this country uh, are under, have been given the responsibility to explain ourselves who and what are we as citizens in this country. Either we feel and we know we are citizens or we don't. If we know we are citizens, let's start acting on that in a responsible manner. Meaning, as a Muslim, on the sunnah, who can show the love and compassion that comes from this creed to benefit mankind. We are supposed to be and we should be the most charitable people on earth. We should be. We are people who should be the most respectful in terms of community cohesion. That we are not people who wantonly destroy anything or abuse and disrespect any part of Allah's creation. We admire. We know we can't be sneering because we can't even create a wing of a fly. And look at Allah's handiwork. So if there's an environmental issue, something about you know, oil spill or you know, biohazard, anything, chemical spill, we should feel something about it as a Muslim because we are in Britain. We know about parents, we know about neighbors. So many hadith I had here about neighbors. I think I'll leave it for the teachers. Please, when the speaker talks about neighbors, I hope he will talk about the tafsir of certain ayat, which tell us very clearly, I'll just pick one of them. This is from Al-Qurtubi. Um, talking about one of the ayat. On this basis, concern for neighbors is a religious duty, regardless of whether they are Muslims or unbelievers. I hope you ask him to clarify what it means. Muslims or unbelievers. Ibn Hajar said the same thing. Whether he's a Muslim or a kafir, his enemy or a friend, known to you or strange to you, if he's a neighbor, he's a neighbor, he has rights. And these ahadith apply. Let me read you two ahadith. One of them, the Messenger said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the mafhum in English. By him in whose hand is my life, no man truly believes until he loves for his neighbor or his brother what he loves for himself. This is basic entry Islam, isn't it? Basic level. So where is that love or concern or care for my neighbor who might be a non-Muslim? Another hadith, he will not enter paradise until whose neighbor is not safe from his bad behavior. You know, I mentioned this last week in one of the talks at a city circle and some people laughed, but I don't see... Maybe it's amusing to listen to it, but it's not an amusing proposition. You know the programs on TV, I never watched it by the way. But I do have a TV at home, so I'm not trying to hide from that fact. So here you go. Programs about neighbors from hell. Why can't it be that because of our understanding of Islam and practice, they, they feel happy to put on a program called Neighbors from Paradise and depict the Muslims? It's like a dream or an ambition, but it needn't be. 
Because we have all the rulings, all the teachings, so clear-cut. And if we behave as true Muslim neighbors, with real concern and the values of you know, etiquette and respect and good manners, the deen is all about good manners, how we behave with Allah, how we behave with His creation. It is about manners. I've not been sent except to perfect muqarim al-akhlaq, beautiful character. Let's learn that behavior. If we do that, do you think the, you know, the Joe Blogs down the streets who looks at the press and watches the TV are going to be taken in by the propaganda? They will say no. Just like it happened recently in Swindon, it happens on and on in Swindon. Maybe the, somebody from Swindon can verify that for me, that I'm not making it up. That the Christian lady always speaks up in defense of Muslims, saying, no, what you say in the press is wrong because I mix with them. They are not like what you say about them. She writes letters to the, um, the press and stuff like that. At least, these public, the people, they're not going to fall for these cooked up videos of Bin Laden killing a pooch somewhere. They murder children like flies. They bulldoze children live in Palestine. I was talking about a dog being killed by Bin Laden. They buried thousands of people alive in the war with Iraq. The mother of all battles, as Saddam called it. The tyrant. Talking about a dog being gassed. And it wasn't we who gassed the Jews, they gassed the Jews. And if I went to a Holocaust memorial, I would cry. As a Muslim. Because I don't think as a Muslim, any Jewish, Christian, Hindu, or Buddhist, or any Muslim children, as a Muslim, any children should suffer. So I have some pages on justice, and I have some pages on preservation of life. I'll finish it there, inshallah. It's time for us to um, get ready for prayers. Uh, Maghrib is going to happen very soon, inshallah. May Allah guide me and guide you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unite us upon the truth. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from any mistake I've made or anything bad, anything bad that I might have said. Whatever good I've said, inshallah, is from the guidance of Allah, from the truth. Whatever bad I've said is indeed from my own ignorance and from shaitan. May Allah only let the truth settle in our hearts and the bad things and mistakes I've made, what is false out of mistake, you know, vanish from our hearts. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shadu wa la ilaha illa anta جزاكم الله خيرا